So just bare bones basics of nitroglycerin. It's obviously used to blow things up and vasodilate your venous system. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Ross Orpit, and we're back again today with my co-host, Will Berry, to talk about an episode he was actually interested in. So a little while ago, he had reached out to me about a case he had while working on the ambulance, and we were chatting back and forth about it, and it, it brought up some interesting topics, and he thought, hey, this would make a really great episode. So I'm going to toss this over to you, Will. What are we talking about today? Yeah, thanks, Ross, and I'm excited about this. So we're talking about nitro in the setting of acute coronary syndrome and STEMI and how well it works. So the case, to jump right in, I was called to a 74-ish male experiencing chest pain. When we get to the house, it's just a, it's a national registry EMT scenario all the way through. This gentleman's laying on his floor. He's clutching his chest with his hand. He says it's going up into his jaw and down his arm. And he says it's the worst he's ever felt. And it came on suddenly while he was driving in his car. So we were, my partner and I were dead set, you know, we're going to hook him up to the 12 lead. And as soon as this prints out, we're going to know exactly how big this STEMI actually is. His vital signs, so he was initially hypertensive. He was systolic of 200. I believe he was 200 over 110, perhaps. His rate was in the 90s, and everything else was, was pretty unremarkable in terms of oxygen saturation and respiratory rate. They, they were what you would expect for somebody possibly having a big MI. We hook him up to the 12 lead, we print out our EKG, and no STEMI right away, but he does have signs of ischemia. And he has what I felt like was the beginning of an inferior STEMI pattern, judging by his, his ST changes. And we actually have the EKGs, and we can put those in the show notes for folks to see. So we administer aspirin, and we actually are kind of surprised, like, wow, maybe we're catching this really early because we thought just based on the clinical presentation, this guy was having a massive heart attack. So we get him in the ambulance and I make a plan with my partner. Hey, you know, we gave aspirin, let's get an IV and let's give this gentleman some nitro because he said his pain was 10 out of 10. I was going to do sublingual nitro and we carry spray on, in, in the service I work in. And my partner asked if I wanted to do any nitro paste. And that was not even at the front of my mind. I said, oh, I'm just going to do the, the sublingual nitro spray and we'll get to going to the hospital. To fast forward, about a minute out from the hospital, he developed ST depression. He became a cardiac alert in our local facility, went to the cath lab and was stented with an occlusion and discharged three days later home. The thing that threw me for a loop was the thought of giving this patient some nitro paste. It is in my local protocol, and the amount of paste you administer is 
predicated on what their systolic blood pressure is. My partner thought, oh man, you know, why didn't we give this guy nitro paste? And I thought, why in the world would we give this guy nitro paste for all kinds of reasons which we can get into? But ultimately, it uncovered, I thought giving nitro paste to an active STEMI would be a really reckless idea, and my partner didn't, and I don't really know what the truth is in all of this. I don't even know how effective nitro is in a STEMI truly. I know we always do it, and then I don't even really know truly what our goal of treatment is. Are we trying to decrease pain? Are we trying to lower their blood pressure? I mean, the textbook answer would be we're probably trying to increase myocardial oxygenation, but are we even doing that? And so these are all the questions I posed to Ross, and we thought we need to punt this to somebody with a lot more knowledge in this subject. And that's why our guest today is Dr. Kevin Coucher. He is a clinical pharmacist in emergency medicine and critical care at the University of New Mexico, and he's an associate professor at the School of Pharmacy for the University of New Mexico. So, Kevin, what's the deal? Where's the truth in all this? Yeah, that's a great question, a great case. And boy, you're you're asking questions that probably should have been asked and answered a few decades ago, actually. And that's where a lot of this evidence comes from, to be honest with you. You weren't wrong in thinking that nitro paste may not be the most appropriate for this patient, really just on the sole basis that nitro paste is a paste and an ointment like sunscreen and takes a little while to work. So if your transport times are going to be less than 30 minutes, nitro paste is just not something I'm going to think of. Your topical spray, sublingual spray and tabs should be the mainstay of treatment. And I think are for the most part in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, But yeah, that's a great case and brings up a lot of good questions. As you mentioned, if nitro paste is the right option and or is nitro at all uh, effective in relieving the oxygen demand that patients are experiencing when they're having an MI. Kevin, I think that's a good place to start in is between the sublingual, the nitro paste, or even the IV nitro with regards to how quickly they act and how well they act and, and how long they last. Yeah. So just bare bones, basics of nitroglycerin. It's obviously used to blow things up and vasodilate your venous system. The paste would probably be a very effective explosive tool but it really is is useless in terms of its timed onset of action. We're talking, it's going to take 10, 15 to 30 minutes to start seeing full effect to reach peak concentrations, but your sublingual spray or tablets are, are going to be less than five minutes. So that's why I just don't consider topical nitroglycerin in my toolbox unless I need it to work for six, seven hours. So I'm using topical nitro to prevent an IV infusion so I don't have to send somebody to the ICU because it's going to tie up an ICU bed for somebody that's just having some angina. But in the pre-hospital setting, regardless of whether or not you meet stomach criteria or your cardiac alert criteria, it's just not going to work fast enough. So the tabs should really be mainstay of treatment and your ointment. It should really only be used if you're looking for that long, prolonged effect over several hours, which is what a lot of people use it for. They slap it on at night 
and they sleep well, wake up in the morning, you know, wipe it off, give themselves a few hours with it off, and then slap some on in, in the afternoon again. That's where nitro paste, really its role in therapy. Yeah. So let me ask you a question on that. How accurate is a medicine that's dosed in inches? <laughs> well, they do give you the, I mean, the packets are, you know, two inch packets and they <laughs> give you that nice little card that, you know, with the ruler on it. It's pretty s- slick how they provide it to you, but you're right. It's an anointment and who knows how long that's going to take to absorb it actually is pretty predictable, to be honest with you. The absorption when they've done PK studies a really long time ago, they do match up pretty well with oral or sublingual dosage forms. They really do achieve equivalent concentrations, but you're talking 30 minutes to achieve a peak concentration versus five minutes. So you're right. There's going to be a ton of variability, whether somebody you apply that pace to somebody who's just diaphoretic and sweating, that pace isn't going anywhere or you're not going to get nitro to penetrate through that paste into that patient's dermis in a timely fashion, you know, which why you need a clean area. It can't be cracked skin. Otherwise you need massive absorption, things like that will all affect that rate of absorption for that paste. So, which is again, just not the ideal product that you want. If you want a predictable response, which you probably do as a medic, if you give something, you want it to work. If I'm hearing you correctly, the bioavailable amount of nitro is going to be very similar to that of a sublingual tab or spray, but it's just going to take a lot longer to become bioavailable. Is that fair to say? Exactly. But then it is, you know, just to put in perspective, that ointment does contain a ton of nitroglycerin. You know, that tablet only contains 0.3 or 0.4 milligrams or, you know, 400 micrograms which is one spray too. But that ointment, two inches of paste is 30 milligrams of nitroglycerin. So it's truly, that paste is meant to provide angel and chest pain relief for seven, eight hours. Because if you divide your 30 milligrams by eight hours, you then get a very, very similar dose to what you're providing every three to five minutes with your oral nitroglycerin tab or, or a spray. They're ultimately very, very different dose forms. Uh, what do you think about this idea that we take this case, we apply some nitroglycerin paste to this patient, and then we start to see, you know, regardless of the time frame, we start to see a drop in blood pressure that we're not comfortable with, and we think, oh, I'll, I'll just wipe it off now. Is that how it works? Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it does go away fairly quickly because the absorbed nitroglycerin, any absorbed nitro will only have a duration of action five, 10 minutes. You know, that's the beauty of nitroglycerin. It gets broken down fairly quickly, metabolized quickly, but there's going to be that paste that's left in the dermis unless you're scrubbing that patient with warm soapy water <laughs> to really, really get the lipid emulsion viscous ointment off of the skin and without doing that. And yet you're right, there's still going to be some that are actively being penetrated, which will get into the systemic circulation, which is not going to help you manage that patient in the acute setting, but hopefully it should wear off fairly rapidly. 
Yeah, what Will's getting at is that often proponents of the nitro paste are like, well, it's great because if I see a side effect, I can just wipe it off and they're not getting it anymore. But from what I'm hearing from you, A, in the emergent setting, so either in a pre-hospital setting or the emergency department, if we want nitro, we probably want something that's going to act quickly. And B, if we give nitro, that nitro is only going to last five minutes. So if we see an adverse event to it, oftentimes we can support it and it will go away quick enough and you're not really getting that benefit of just just wiping it away. It'll be the same as if you had given sublingual and seen that side effect as well. Yeah, exactly. Kevin, is there any difference between tablet and spray sublingual? No, they're basically the same. The kinetics should work out to be the same. They're both extremely bioavailable and you avoid first pass metabolism because it's being absorbed sublingually or in the buckle space. So those are going to act very, very similarly. Yep. And you shouldn't have any kinetic differences. Nice. Well, that, that kind of answers that question. But then if we pull the thread a little bit more, what are we even trying to do with a nitro? I can recite for you what I was told in paramedic school that it dilates the vasculature and its effects on preload and hopefully trying to dilate some coronary arteries as well. Is it doing these things and is that beneficial to the patient? Well, I think first and foremost, I should ask you, I mean, does it work for your patients? Because your indications in your protocols are for chest pain. Is it working for chest pain? That's a great question. So I would say anecdotally, patients I've had do generally report that it helps with their pain. I can think of other patients I've had pre-hospitally that also experience the side effects, the headache and the dizziness. And they That's what I was going to say. It's, it's always an they offset, report right? that as a pretty, yeah, they <laughs> report that as a pretty uncomfortable side effect. So. Yeah, my chest, my chest feels better, but my head is freaking killing me now. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, is it, is that basically the, Hey, you don't want your chest to hurt, hit yourself in the hand with this hammer principle and you won't think about your chest anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important question because, you know, I've very few times in my life had a very painful condition. So, but I think if I was having a heart attack or anything, I would just want my pain relief. That's really all I care about. And I think that's probably what a lot of patients care about is, this is this elephant sitting on my chest just hurts get it off i will take anything and if it's helping your patients you really have to convince me that it's doing a lot of harm before i would say you shouldn't use it so the fact that anecdotally you think it's working that to me says it probably is helping we can obviously get in here in a little bit about what the evidence and the physiologic effects of it and the evidence and long-term patient-centered outcomes. But if it works for pain, that's a pretty important patient-centered outcome, I think. So so I, in those respects, I think it is effective if you're seeing patients experience pain relief, which might differ a little bit actually than what the evidence says. And we can talk about that here in a minute too. But 
Ross, do you have any other? No, no, I agree. I think the goal of nitro, right, is to decrease patients' anginal symptoms. I mean, we patients who have had MIs or who have known coronary artery disease will be prescribed this and will take this at home if they're having, you know, typical anginal symptoms and and not necessarily always come to the emergency department for their chest pain. And so that's the goal of it. I think I have seen it be effective with that regard, with some side effects as well. Yeah, so that's I think in its effect of reducing pain, which is the primary goal of reducing pain reduce oxygen demand, you know, blunting your sympathetic outflow with reducing pain, I think is super important. Looking at a lot of these studies and more recent studies, the percentage and the proportion of patients who actually state and report pain relief is actually only around 40 to 50%, which is actually lower than I thought anecdotally, because then I'm just trying to put it into perspective, like, wow, if I'm going to treat 10 people, only five are going to actually experience anginal relief is not what I actually expected. I thought it would be a lot higher because then you have all those dangerous side effects that we hear about. We talk about too, like not using that as diagnostic, right? The fact that nitro decreased their pain or didn't decrease their pain. So what you're saying is in the literature, only 40 to 50% of the time, if somebody was actually having a coronary event, it decreased their pain. So just because they didn't have a decrease in their pain doesn't mean that this isn't cardiac. And just because they had a decrease in their pain, there's also been studies that have shown in like esophageal spasm or GERD, nitro will improve those symptoms as well. So just because nitro helped your pain doesn't also doesn't necessarily mean this is the coronaries. Yeah, I mean, nitro does vasodilate smooth muscle. So when you do that, you get offloading of pressure in a lot of places that can cause pain or or other complications. So nitro is not a miracle drug by any means. It's kind of dirty in the sense that it acts on smooth muscle. So you're going to feel a little bit better irregardless of the complication that you have that could be being caused by some vasoconstrictive condition or some vasospasm, which causes pain. And what is nitroglycerin doing to the cardiopulmonary system when given is it's decreasing ventricular wall stress, which is decreasing your demand. That we know that has been published and is what we could say it's doing definitively. Its effects on the coronaries in the arterial system, that has not played out. You know, dating way back to the 80s, evidence suggests that nitroglycerin is really only vasodilating the arterial system at very high doses, probably much higher doses than these sublingual dosage forms can give us. So our theoretical Increase in oxygen delivery aspect of what we think nitroglycerin might also be doing is probably not as much the case as it as it just decreasing oxygen demand in the venous system that we do know and can probably confidently say. To summarize that, it sounds like our hope was nitroglycerin as a smooth muscle vasodilator. We were hoping it would vasodilate the coronary arteries and thus allow for more blood and oxygen delivery to the heart. But that hasn't necessarily played out on the arterial side of things and that we find that it's more of a smooth muscle or a venous dilator and that maybe it helps your symptoms. And if we can help your symptoms, we can decrease your sympathetic response, which if you have a decreased sympathetic response, then that in return will decrease your myocardial oxygen demand. So maybe it's helpful for other reasons than we initially hoped, but doesn't have much effect on the actual arterial or coronary artery system. Correct. Yep. Nailed it. 
it brings up, you talk about, you know, well, great. Decreasing a patient's pain is a good thing. So you're going to have to convince me that there might be some harm for me to avoid giving it. And we're always taught inferior right ventricular MIs, which is what you guys were worried about in this case, Will, is that potentially that will decrease your preload. But if your right ventricle is already struggling because of this MI and you then decrease the preload, well, that's going to hinder your right ventricle even further and produce life-threatening hypotension and cardiac collapse and all of those things. Is any of this borne out in the literature? What do you think about this, Kevin? Yeah, a lot of new evidence coming out with that and people looking at that exact question when they've found that there really has not been a profound effect in hemodynamics in patients with inferior MIs and even potentially RV involvement. I'm not saying that's probably something we should still just not be cautious with, certainly, but I think it supports the use if we want to provide something for this chest pain. I think we could safely say, assuming they have adequate hemodynamics, good blood pressure, as Will had in his case, I think that'd be somebody you could certainly still give nitroglycerin to. And the evidence now supports that because we have not seen that profound and precipitous drop in blood pressure that we originally had thought that the theoretical concern was with nitroglycerin and reducing your preload and these patients really being volume dependent. With that in mind, can you speak a little bit to max dosage? This, you know, give three doses and then if it's not doing anything after three, switch gears. Is that more dogmatic or is that rooted in anything true of nitro? I think that's part of the the dogma, right? It was give three doses. If you're not experiencing relief, you should call the EMS system. At least that was what I was taught you know, 20 years ago. Um, but no, I mean, there is no max dose in the short term per se, but you're right. Your juice isn't worth the squeeze at that point if you're not getting relief because, you know, cardiology will want us to dial up the nitro IV at upwards of 100 mics per minute or greater at times. So you're not coming anywhere close to that if you're going to only give your nitro tab every five minutes. So what are you gaining? after a handful of doses and you haven't seen that effect. So can you speak, Kevin, to if it's essentially a 50-50 shot that we're going to impact the patient's pain, but we are having an effect on the muscle of the myocardium. What about opioids for the pain and acute coronary syndrome? Because that's also in the protocol. And I think people draw some imaginary if then statements, you know, like, well, if one of them's not working, move to the other one or vice versa. But in reality, they're doing different things. Just to back up one step, I am not anti nitroglycerin. I think it's extremely important. Like we've talked about, I think it is reducing your sympathetic outflow, even though it's potentially only working half of the time. But people are taking millions of doses of this stuff every year that we don't even know about and nobody's dropping dead that I'm aware of due to their profound RV infarct. So I think there's evidence that nitroglycerin is very safe. I mean, it's in millions of households. With that being said, looking at the 
the effects of different modalities in ACS care, right? So now we're starting to get away from the Mona because oxygen now is bad and toxic. Morphine has also now started to get some publicity in reducing the effectiveness of its antiplatelets, which are probably the one primary treatment that does actually work, aspirin specifically. So I think all of these options have their downsides. And I think nitroglycerin, to be honest with you, has safer data than morphine and oxygen because those aren't in millions of people's homes. And people aren't just taking oxygen with their chest pain or injecting themselves with morphine. So the fact that we're seeing some evidence that those therapies might have more detrimental effects than nitroglycerin, I tend to believe that those could potentially be more harmful than the nitroglycerin that we're giving. So morphine, you know, certainly has gotten a lot of publicity lately with decreasing gastric motility and absorption of these antiplatelets and actually does have some effects of increased ischemic events. So I would caution against using morphine if at all possible and using the nitroglycerin pathways if, if possible. But certainly, like I said, it might just not work in some patients. So you might have to go that opioid route if needed. That's my perspective from this emerging clinical data that I'm not sure is taken hold yet either and and is probably not standard of care and standard of practice everywhere. This is very new evidence that should be discussed in avenues such as this um, and probably will continue to be for the next 10 years before practice truly changes. Yeah. So the theoretical benefit of morphine was, I guess, similar to to nitro, like we were talking about, you're going to decrease their pain. If you can decrease their pain, you'll decrease the sympathetic response. If you can decrease that, you'll decrease myocardial oxygen demand. But now there's some concerns, like you're talking about the absorption of your antiplatelets, which which aspirin, if we look at all the studies, aspirin out of Mona is the only thing that has decreased mortality and has shown like real benefit to these patients. And so that's the thing we don't want to hinder. And so there's that concern. What about fentanyl? Do you have the same concerns with fentanyl in these patients? I do. I mean, it's a delayed gastric emptying and absorption. You know, it's not a enzymatic interaction really to the aspirin. So anything that's going to delay gastric emptying and absorption of aspirin should be cautiously used in patients who we suspect that are having an an MI and need an antiplatelet. And that could be things like Maalox. You don't want to be chugging a bunch of Maalox and then need to take your aspirin. You're going to get delayed absorption or caraphate or lidocaine gel. All of these things, anything in your stomach is going to delay absorption of aspirin potentially, especially something like opioids, which will delay passage to the small intestine. Is that because aspirin is mainly absorbed in the small intestine? Is that why that is? It's absorbed in the stomach and the small intestine. And usually when you chew it, you break it down to a fine particle size that's more readily absorbed. But anything that delays its passage to the small intestine, which is actually where most medications are absorbed in the small intestine, it's not in the, the gastrum. I want to kind of like put this in my own words a little bit. It's backing up a couple steps. In paramedic school, I was still taught MONA, so acute coronary syndrome, M-O-N-A, morphine, oxygen, nitro, aspirin. That was like your mainstay of treatment, and they all went together. And then one by one, those things have fallen to where aspirin is really the one thing that has been proven 
to benefit the patient. And the part that you just said that I didn't even think about, but it's kind of blowing my mind a little bit is we know this aspirin is beneficial. We ask them to chew it up, swallow it, and it's going to absorb through their gut. And then we might give them something that completely slows down GI motility and absorption. Has anybody studied that? Does that impact the aspirin availability? So I honestly can't speak to aspirin kinetics in the setting of opioids. I'm sure those studies do exist, but I do know opioids given with aspirin for acute coronary syndrome has led to increased ischemic events in, I think, the first 30 days post-event. So that, to me, tells me that you had inappropriate platelet inhibition. Now, granted, there's a lot of aspects to cardiac care that could have caused that difference. But with regression analysis, they've found that the that correlation of morphine plus your antiplatelet leads to in, increased in ischemic events in the short term. So I think that is evidence enough to say that there is a patient-centered outcome effect with opioids that we don't really want, or at least I don't want if I'm having an MI. But again, if I'm having really bad chest pain and the nitro doesn't work, I might want morphine. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The data it's in reviewing the data myself, it's pretty muddy when it comes to narcotics, you know, it's, as to whether some studies have shown no difference some more recent studies have shown some legitimate concerns with increasing adverse outcomes when opiates were received. So it's not clear to me, but if you can avoid it, I think the take home is, you know, maybe best to, and I've also Personally, similarly with the nitro, like if somebody's having a true ischemic event outside of even their heart, like if somebody's having ischemia of their leg or ischemia of their gut, I've not found opiates to be very successful in relieving that pain. That's severe pain that's difficult to treat. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to break things down to like number needed to treat and it just dumbs it down a little bit, simplifies things and like aspirin, you know, it has a number needed to treat prevent a major cardiac event, you know, in the first 30 days or something of like in the twenties. So you only have to treat 20 patients with aspirin and that's a pretty low number needed to treat. Something like nitro is, yeah, nitro is now over a hundred. That's not a good number needed to treat, but that's mortality, which is a very important outcome. And morphine doesn't actually now with the new evidence of ischemic events, it's number needed to harm would be much less than the number needed to treat. Maybe you shouldn't routinely give them a treatment where their number needed to harm is less than their number needed to treat. So that's just an interesting way to think about these treatments that we're giving for ACS. Then I like to put it in that perspective because then it really gives me something simplified to use to approach patient care. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it, the the number needed to treat, which we've talked about before on this show, but it's essentially for aspirin, if you were to give 20 patients aspirin, one of those patients would see a clinical benefit from that, as opposed to nitro, like you just said, in hundreds, you need to treat hundreds of people to see one clinical benefit. And then there's conversely, there's the number needed to harm. How many patients do you give that medication that you see one harm from? And as you just said, that, that number may be less than the number needed to treat when you're talking about morphine. You know, we're not saying never, but think critically about it. Along these lines, are there any emerging treatments happening that may make their way 
into the pre-hospital setting for these patients? That's a good question. Certainly, pre-hospital thrombolytics is probably talked about quite frequently. I'm not sure in the setting of ACS per se, but it's currently being done for other conditions. But uh, yeah, we could talk yeah. about you know the things that have been studied that we know make a mortality benefit or ischemic injury benefit within ACS. And we talked about morphine hasn't shown to do that. Oxygen has been shown to increase the ischemic area if titrated above 95%. So we know hyperoxia is actually not a good thing either. And really we should just titrate somewhere between 90 and 95%. Nitro, you know, maybe some, some benefit, but really it's there for kind of pain relief. And then aspirin has shown significant benefit to patients. I think other things in the hospital that just come to mind off the top of my head, and there's maybe more, but like, I think other antiplatelets, so like dual antiplatelet therapy, like ticagrelor has shown some benefit when given to patients who are going to the cath lab. PCI, if performed within 90 minutes of a STEMI, that's our goal, right? And so if we can't get somebody to the cath lab within 90 minutes, that's when we're looking at thrombolytics with either, you know, TNKs or TPA. Are there other things in the hospital that you can think of that we do, Kevin, that make a mortality benefit or ischemic area benefit? Uh, similar to Mona, we're getting rid of a few things like heparin and anticoagulants that don't appear to have the benefit that they once used did 20, 30 years ago. And a lot of this is post-MI care, honestly. You know, with advances in primary care and new medications and antihypertensives and glucose control, you know, we have younger people on a lot of new medications now, which are impacting our outcomes with ACS care because they're almost teed up and kind of optimized medically. And some people are still having MIs, unfortunately, but there's been a lot of advancements in care with, with cardiac care. So I think that's where a lot of the improved outcomes are coming from. I always like to go back to whenever you're talking about a topic that's as, as big as, you know, acute coronary syndrome. We have big guidelines. The AHA, ACC put out guidelines every 10, 15 years. But I always urge people to look at those guidelines and identify the level of evidence that these experts who are the panel members on writing these guidelines. Like what level of evidence did they give therapies that we're, we're using? And just for example... Nitroglycerin has a level class 1C evidence is provided. And if you look, every guideline describes what that means. So it's interesting because we often just skip right to the summary and we want to know, in MI, do I give nitro? Yes, nitro is recommended. Perfect. I'm going to give nitro. But if you look at what a 1C is, there's benefit greater than risk, but it's basically expert opinion within 1C is they describe case reports potentially and studies with low precision, high indirectness. So maybe the studies didn't really look at ACS, all ACS patients, they just looked at patients with chest pain. So there's low precision in these outcomes, but the readers in the writing committee felt it was still important, likely due to anecdotal evidence and dogma. So they give it the level of recommendations, which is interesting. So you always have to pay attention to that when you're reading guidelines or you're giving a therapy that is in a guideline, such as the large AHA guidelines that are put out for ACS. I found that interesting when I saw that they had labeled sublingual nitroglycerin with a 1C because that's not very good evidence when you really look at it. 
which is kind of what we've talked about over the last few minutes. So essentially a bunch of experts looked at some crap studies and said, yeah, we we think most likely theoretically this works. And similarly, looking at that, if you look at those guidelines and the recommendation against nitro, so those guidelines do recommend against giving nitro in inferior right ventricular MIs. But if you look at that evidence, it's based essentially on a single study from the mid 80s that looked at 40 patients and saw some decreases in blood pressure in those 40 patients. And subsequently, we've had some more studies and, and most recently a review of, of a couple studies that showed that, yeah, maybe you have some decreases in blood pressure, but it's very mild, very transient and goes away with a fluid bolus. And within five minutes, like you said, and there were no like patient oriented bad outcomes in those cases. So likely in an inferior MI, it's still probably safe to give if you look at the most recent data. Yeah. And I think in in one of those new studies, the incidence of hypotension or change in blood pressure greater than 30 millimeters of mercury, which is a pretty big change. The true incidence of a clinically significant hypotension of a systolic less than 90 was less than 10%. So very small, but big changes of around 30 millimeters of mercury occurred in about 25% of patients, which is actually pretty high. I thought, because I, I don't see that personally. I, I see that with IV administration of nitroglycerin, but I don't see that with the sublingual tabs. It could be that maybe we were not, we're just not checking blood pressures enough. We don't have a lines and continuous monitoring in, in all these patients yet. That's the difference of 40 to 50% experience pain relief and that get the outcome you want to potentially somewhere between 10 and 20% drop their pressure significantly, but not clinically significant enough to take, to, to experience a systolic bus of 90, which is probably truly you'd see that clinically if you saw that change. Maybe that's their headache. The transient drop in blood pressure is so fast that they don't, they don't pass out, but you know, gives them that headache for about a second or two. Yeah. And actually, you know, speaking of, I should just touch base briefly on some relative contraindications to nitroglycerin that I think we've kind of alluded to that even in, with inferior MIs or an RV infarct, it's probably safe as long as they have good hemodynamics and there's emerging evidence to support that. But, you know, we have a lot of people who have pulmonary hypertension or who are taking these long-acting also diastase inhibitors, like sildenafil, tadalafil. Those are becoming quite common in the pulmonary hypertension world and obviously used for erectile dysfunction as well. So in those patients, I, I do think we should avoid nitroglycerin if at all possible, unless they have a blood pressure of 220. Because you can get, and I think we've probably all seen precipitous drops in those patients because you're just getting additive smooth muscle relaxation in those patients. And I think nitroglycerin could be extremely dangerous to give. So that's something I think you should ask if at all possible before you give nitroglycerin. That's something easy that we could easily catch, I think. But yeah, that's kind of one patient I really try to steer clear of giving nitro to. And there is in theory with aortic stenosis, you know, they're very volume dependent across the, that gradient and flow across their valve is really important for their cardiac output and dumping somebody's preload can potentially 
put somebody with severe AS, erixinosis, in a bad place. Also not truly contraindicated, but something I would just like to know. If somebody knew they had AS, you would then maybe just potentially avoid nitroglycerin, if at all possible. So before you give nitroglycerin, ask, is there blood pressure above 90, 100 systolic? Is, are they on any vasodilator medications or, or erectile dysfunction medications, pulmonary hypertension medications like Viagra, Sildenafil, stuff like that. Do they have any aortic valvular disease like aortic stenosis? Those are the things you want to know before you give somebody nitroglycerin. Yep, exactly. On that note, I recently learned that there's quite a few people taking those erectile dysfunction meds like Viagra for off-label uses, like even gains in exercise. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because I do think when we do our acute coronary syndrome scenario over and over and over again, we just think about a a male patient that's maybe older and is using it for the on-label use of correcting erectile dysfunction. But I think the patient population is actually much broader than that. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, there's an increase in use significantly. And yeah, I think off-label use for performance enhancing outside of erectile dysfunction is certainly a new area that I've seen it as well. I think these drugs are going to dilate your pulmonary vasculature. You're going to feel better under, under loads of stress. So I think that's where they're seeing these improvements in performance or potentially using it for those indications, which is the physiology of somebody with pulmonary hypertension, right? You just have your LV is just overloaded. Your output, you you, you just can't compensate for that need of oxygen demand, but by vasodilating your pulmonary vasculature, you're you know relieving some of that congestion that you potentially are getting in in, in exercise environment type environment. So, but yeah, that's. That's why I, th- I, because we've seen a, a, these phosphodiesterase inhibitors are becoming the primary treatments of pulmonary hypertension as well. So, but they weren't 20 years ago. So this is a relatively new treatment for even pulmonary hypertension. So that's why I think we're about to see a lot more patients on these medications. And I think there are some similar compounds that are not FDA approved that people can buy on the internet for the exercise improvements and erectile dysfunction. So I think there are very similar compounds that are available to the public that we just don't know all about. So I think it's worth asking the question of, have you taken uh, anything to enhance performance, erectile dysfunction, or otherwise, just to see if they can offer up what it is. And that might, uh, might provide you with a little bit more caution before before throwing some nitro at somebody. Kevin, you've covered a lot of this, but I do want to kind of, in a sense, bring it full circle. So my local protocol allows sublingual nitro or nitro paste, and it doesn't make a distinction of which to use first or, or when. It just, they're both in the protocol. It does say that for the paste, their systolic has to be above a certain amount, and it goes into for one inch, you know, this blood pressure, inch and a half, this, you know. So I guess 
to me, knowing this now, that just kind of feels like overcomplicating something that's way simpler than that. And I don't. So this is the reason why I was struggling with how to phrase this question, because this protocol is written to meet the needs of relatively urban environments with short transport times, as well as more rural settings in our state that do have longer transport times where I could maybe see the benefit of the nitro paste and its slower absorption. But I think it more often probably creates a situation where people are overthinking things. And I wonder if, given what we've discussed, is there a setting where the nitro paste could be a good tool for the job pre-hospitally? My approach, like yours, is if you want something to work right now, which you usually do, you give a tab, you know, and if that does if that works, you, know, you give another tab a few minutes later or a spray. And then if you are in a, uh, a rural setting, you can still give the paste on top of that. If you have a long transport time or, you know, somebody who needs to get flown out to a primary PCI center, that's when the paste might be great, but it's just going to take a little bit of time to work. So that's just never my primary treatment. I love the spray and the taps for that reason. That's an interesting point you bring up is the fact that you could do both if you have a longer transport time. I mean, that paste isn't going to work for 30 minutes. Your sublingual dose is going to be gone in five, 10 minutes. So you could start with a tab of sublingual and do the paste if your transport is going to be like an hour, two hours and, and see how that works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's what the paste was intended for. For all intents and purposes, the paste was to be applied at home and you slap that old tape on there and you take it off eight hours later. That's that's what the paste was developed for. And I think it does a great job at providing nitroglycerin for seven, eight hours. But it just, it's just going to take 15 minutes for it to, to kick in, potentially. I just don't see it's effectiveness in a really short transport system. So, I mean, that's what my approach would be. I don't think it's wrong to have paste in any protocols. It'd be great for long transports or multiple doses of sublingual sprays or tabs. It is kind of duplicative. If you didn't want to spend money on something, then I'd probably get rid of the paste, if anything. But you're not wrong in following your protocols of having either one. But if you have five minutes and you want to get anginal chest pain relieved in five minutes, I would go with the tab or the spray all day. And even in the hospital, you know, it takes me 10 minutes to set up a nitro drip. So that's what we'll do. We'll just pop some tabs until I can get your nitro drip hung up. I don't slap paste on them and then start the nitro drip because then I'm also worried. I don't really know how much nitro paste is still going to be on the skin when I start my nitro drip. So more difficult to titrate. So that's my, that would be my approach. That makes sense. I would add to that, that for the pre-hospital providers listening to this, apply critical thinking to these scenarios. I, I think that many people view a protocol like this as, well, I did my sublingual nitro and I maxed that out, but I still have paste within my protocol. So I feel like the patient still needs nitro. I will switch to paste 
that way I don't have to make a call to medical direction. I would argue the opposite, make a call to medical direction and discuss what the best treatment modality is going to be for the patient. And given all the tools you have, what do you think about that, Ross? Oh, absolutely. And you might just, you know, you make that call and they're like, hey, nitro worked those first three doses. I understand you're out. You know, your protocol says only give three doses, but they worked. And now five minutes later, their pain's back and their blood pressure is fine. Go ahead and give a fourth dose, give a fifth dose before you get here. And, you know, you might get that order. And so that might be better for you because if you're if you're slapping that paste on after three doses of oral already, again, it's going to take 30 minutes to work. So it's it's not accomplishing the goal you want. So I agree. Make that phone call. You know, it, it might be better. You might get an order that's that's better for the patient. Awesome. Well, Kevin. I can't thank you enough. You cleared up this nitro paste conundrum in my head. I think yeah, we should put this on the calendar to talk about this in 10 years from now, because I think a lot's going to happen <laughs> with, with pre-hospital ACS care. I think you're right. I guess dogma has held strong for probably the last 50 years with nitroglycerin, but I think we're close to some changes in pre-hospital care for ACS in terms of the, the old dogmas that have, have held strong for so long, but, but who knows, I, you know, I what do I know? Maybe not, but I think it would be interesting to talk about this in 10 years and see what has happened in the management of ACS from pre-hospital setting with our, our old standbys and these dogmas. Yeah. I mean, it just, in the last as we were talking about with Mona in the last 10 years, as, as much as we've seen that change and how change is, is increasing in speed with every single year. I, I agree. I think we'll see some drastic changes in the next 10 years. And I think we're actually due for an AHA update too. So hopefully they incorporate some of this new evidence into their new guidelines, which will then directly impact pre-hospital care as well, because they're, as we've seen, right, there's, been a bunch of pre-hospital inclusion into these guidelines now with prioritization of transport to centers and whatnot. I think it's definitely a priority for them to include all of this in the pre-hospital realm. I think we'll see some changes with the next update whenever that comes out. But it's great to be on. Thanks, Kevin. You're a wealth of knowledge. It was great having you on and I'm sure everybody involved enjoyed this. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, cool.